0: an investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome Mr. Carmen Fernholz. He's an organic farmer based in western Minnesota, in Madison, Minnesota. He grows 450 acres of certified organic grains. He has been farming since 1972. I'll do the math for you. That's 48 years. And since 1975, he has been a certified organic farmer. He has a wealth of knowledge about cover crops, weeds, and fertility management. He is the vice chair of O-Farm, which is a farmer-led grain marketing cooperative. He was the MOSES Farmer of the Year in 2005, and I had the privilege of serving with him on the MOSES board for several years. MOSES stands for the Midwest Organic Sustainable and Education Service. Mr. Fernholz has worked on research projects with the University of Minnesota. He is most known for his organic integrity. Carmen, welcome. It's so wonderful to have you with me.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Melinda. I really appreciate the opportunity to visit with you.
0: Well, we had a long time together on the Moses board, and I've often said that organic farmers have been some of my best teachers. And helping me, a consumer educator and a nutritionist, make those connections between how we grow our food and the quality of the food and therefore public health and environmental quality. I want to know how you made the switch or why you made the switch in 1972 from what I'm assuming is conventional farming to organic farming.
1: Well, I I can be brief about it. First of all, when when I did graduate from college, I had had an English degree but taught school for about five or six years But when I was growing up, my parents got this publication from Rodale called Organic Gardening and Farming. And that uh, little child, I saw that laying around the table, and I'd hear my parents talking about it. And then uh, my mother had a wheat grinder where she ground uh, her own wheat for bread making. And Dad would grow the wheat in the field, but the wheat that he used in the house never got sprayed the garden never got sprayed. And so that was a message that when I did have the opportunity to go farming and left the teaching field, these thoughts started coming back to me. And so after doing conventional farming for about three or four years and getting myself situated, I started thinking in these terms and decided to uh, move in that direction. And at the same time, I did have some mentors in uh, western Minnesota who were, at that time, my age today. And so they were showing me that they could do it without the chemicals that, the chemicals and the fertilizer there were just really becoming part of agriculture in the late 50s and into the 60s. And so all of those pieces started coming together and having a college degree, having a, a certain sense of positive attitudes towards yourself and what you're able to accomplish, I decided to move in that direction. And the rest is history, as they say.
0: So did you get any flack from any of your conventional farming neighbors?
1: It's amazing. I never really did. I tried to always assimilate with them. I wasn't out there pointing fingers at them so much as, for me, it was build it and the people will come. Mm. It was me doing what i thought would be the best thing for me and my family so never really had any uh... conflicts in fact i looked at some of the key people in the community of madison the the movers in the shape the thinkers and these people were supportive of me including the poet robert Bly, who grew up in madison he was one of my biggest supporters so uh... I never felt under pressure or anything of that nature.
0: That's so interesting because I often hear organic farmers say that they have to worry about somebody talking about them at the coffee shop negatively. And it makes them, you know, it makes them feel awkward. And everybody, I think it's human nature to want to fit in with everybody else. I think that's one of the conflicts that many farmers face.
1: You know, I guess, and I don't say this uh, cynically, but I never spent any time at the coffee shop. (laughs) I I, I spent it out on the farm, and and although I was involved with the uh, Farm Business Management course through the colleges and things, that was my connection primarily with conventional, but, oh, uh, I didn't spend much time there, and... So I I maybe didn't even know what was being said
0: about me. Right. You're better off not knowing. Well, now look at you. You are recognized as one of the true leaders in the field, no pun intended. Outstanding in your field, as they say. But I'm curious to know about the marketing aspects. Back in 1975, were there markets specifically wanting to buy organic grain? Did you have any trouble selling your grain?
1: back then there really wasn't any market in fact some of the first markets were on the west coast and it was very limited primarily to uh, organic soybeans because there was uh, the process of using soybeans to make uh misu and tofu i believe were the two big food in products that were being made and they wanted organic soybeans and the best place where they could source those soybeans was in the midwest And as I mentioned earlier, these older farmers that I used as mentors, some of them were looking into the organic program, and they had been strongly connected with Rodale and people like that. And so working with them, the connection started happening. But what it really took was some incidents like the LR uh, Mm. incident with apples, and then there were some grapes being imported from from South America then had some chemical residues, and all of a sudden, people became alerted to what had been happening in agriculture for the previous ten to fifteen years, the use of chemicals and And it came home, and that's what really brought organics to the forefront.
0: You know, in my circles, I often hear farmers or the ag industry try to tell dietitians that a, a little bit of residue isn't going to hurt us. it's all legal. And the other thing is, we can't feed the world without using these chemicals. And then I go to Moses meetings and I meet, you know, 3,000 attendees who are wanting to move in this direction, who absolutely tell me that we can feed the world without the poisons. How do you navigate that kind of communication?
1: Probably the first thing I tell people is if you give me and the rest of us organic producers, of the research dollars that go into agriculture, we can feed the world hands down. That's the first thing I say. Secondly, we know from our production and uh, results of our production that we can be comparable in what we produce to our conventional neighbors. Just experience tells us we can do that. But the most important thing I come back to is give us the research dollars and we will compete bushel for bushel.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to talk about integrity because that is a word that consistently comes up every time I Google your name. And when I talk about organic food and why I advocate for organic food and farming, I like to talk about integrity of the soil and the water and the people who are producing this food. And there have been some threats to the organic label. And I remember, for example, I read a piece that said in the United States, organic grain farmers lost over $400 million from 2015 to 2017 to fraudulent organic imports. How does that happen?
1: Part of it happens because we haven't really put together what I would call a robust tracking system internationally. In the United States, we have, because every time I am inspected each year, which we all know organic certification is based upon an annual on-farm inspection, the inspector will take one of my crops, and I have to indicate to that inspector where I bought the seed, where I planted the crop, what I did in that field when I harvested the crop, where I stored it who bought the crop and the paperwork that followed it. That's the audit trail I, as a farmer in this country, need to go through. What was happening in a lot of crops that were being imported into this country, the audit trail was not there as robust as it needed to be. And the economic pressure that was there was the fact that the dollar was very strong. So uh, domestic buyers, could buy lots of product in foreign countries and make a lot of dollars on it. But I think the biggest issue was that if one of these imports was found to be fraudulent, the importer was merely given a, an $11,000 fine on what was actually a 4 or $5 million load of grain. Wow. And so uh, as one person told me, There was more money in importing fraudulent grain than what is in drugs. Wow. So that's what really threw things out of kilter during those years.
0: Yeah. Has it been rectified?
1: It's in the process. The uh, uh, NOSB is just released the, what they're calling strengthening organic enforcement. And they're working to work together with Border Patrol on watching and checking what is being imported they're following the audit trails a lot stronger but a lot of work needs to continue to be done Mm
0: -hmm. are we not growing enough organic grain in the united states that we have to import it
1: that's a question that i never quite sure what the answer is a lot of the buyers will say they can't get enough grain And yet, uh, they will go and find grain from a cheaper source and actually undercut the economic stability of our domestic growers. So if it's really a fact that there isn't enough domestic grain, then logic would say that the buyers should be paying more to enhance the situation and incentivize domestic production of the grain. But that's not happening like it should. And so to give you a yes or no answer, it's really difficult to say, but I don't think the shortage is as critical as it is. And I say that again because when I uh, work with our old farm marketers and we talk twice a month on conference calls, they tell me how much organic corn, for example, and that's domestic organic corn, but buyers not willing to pay what it should be worth.
0: Mm. Now, do organic farmers receive the same subsidies as conventional farmers?
1: Yes, we get the same types of subsidies for most of the crops. We can operate under the same crop insurance programs, anything like that. Where we do sometimes get, I guess I don't know for sure how to say it, but where we sometimes miss out on subsidies is some of the conservation crops that we grow For example, alfalfas and forages of that nature are not subsidized nearly at the level of corn, soybeans, cotton, and wheat. And that's part of the reason why we see a pressure on organic producers to start minimizing their uh, rotations of crops, to start focusing more on these, what they call, cash cow crops. But... In general, yes. An organic farmer has access to almost any of the same things that a conventional farmer has when it comes to USDA and all of their programs.
0: Okay. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Carmen Fernholz. He's an organic farmer based in western Minnesota. He grows 450 acres of certified organic grains. You know, it's interesting in talking about the biodiversity of different crops. One of the things that impressed me about your farming system is that you had multiple grains and you're diving now into a perennial grain, Kernza, which, gosh, it seems like that makes so much sense. You plant it once, right? We don't often see that level of biodiversity on conventional farms. And that concerns me from a resiliency perspective. That's where I think the organic farmer really has the edge as well in terms of supporting a much more diverse and robust system.
1: No question about it. That's always been sort of the safety net for organic farmers. For example, uh, 2018 and 2019 were very, very poor years for growing small grains, but good years for growing uh, row crops of corn and soybeans. Well, because I had a diversified rotation my corn and soybeans helped me carry through on those two years. There have been other years. This year it's a little bit drier, so the small grains thrive better than the row crops. It's that kind of diversity and that kind of safety net that diversity on the farm can provide, and if we plug livestock in, it's it's another piece of the puzzle that gives us that uh, additional safety net. But just to digress a second, the currency is, is absolutely an interesting thing. The Land Institute, years back in conjunction with the Rodale Institute, started thinking about perennializing the landscape, and they wanted to come about with a crop that they felt could be introduced into that concept with the most potential for success. And after a whole process of selection, et cetera, they did come up with the perennial wheatgrass, or the, what the Land Institute has trademarked as Kernza. And over the time, uh, I think it was starting in 2011. I connected with the university and started growing some of that on the farm here as a research plot. And now 2018, the university has in fact released its own variety of I called Minnesota Clearwater, and markets are being developed. But the thing that I love about it, as you mentioned, is perennialized. You can plant it one year and It comes back each year. Some things that need to be developed yet, but the potential is phenomenal on where we can go with it and other potential perennial crops that universities are working on.
0: Oh, I could not agree more. I bought some Kernza flower when I was at the, the Land Institute as a prairie festival in the fall. That's where I first was exposed to Kernza. And I thought, oh, this is wonderful. Now, it's got a low gluten content, if I recall correctly, so it's good for making muffins and cookies, but for bread baking, we're not there yet.
1: Correct. And and I think it's important to remember that Kernza is not a substitute for wheat. Kernza is a unique crop that will have unique characteristics and unique uses. And so That's, I think, something important to remember because people are thinking that, well, it's going to be a substitute for wheat. No, it's not. It's going to have, like I said, unique uses, but its ecosystem services are what uh, really, really start changing the paradigm in agriculture because it's a perennial crop, uh, carbon sequestration, soil health building, water retention, minimizing soil erosion, all of these pieces come in. There's one little piece I'd like to add here, and what we're really striving for as well is the economic and social aspects of Kernza. We want to put Kernza into the market at a viable price for anybody to enter in and grow it and prohibit it from becoming what I would bluntly say as in an, another industrial crop.
0: Right. Well, I'm glad you brought up ecosystem services because that was something that was on my list to talk to you about. What do you mean by that?
1: By ecosystem services, we mean what services this crop will provide for the environment, that is soil building health, economics, that if I grow the crop, I can make a living off of it, and socially, that if we market that crop at a profitable price, we can allow new producers to come into agriculture and produce it. I've always said food production must be an egalitarian process. It cannot be something that only the privileged few can do because of the labor of the masses. It has to be as much owner-operator and must have that as much possibility of owner operator decisions as can be done. And so I think many times we look at the environmental things when we talk about ecosystem services we're going to we're going to clean up the water, we're going to clean up the air, we're going to build the soil. These things are critical. But when I think of ecosystem services for me, people come first. Mm-hmm. And so If we're gonna have a balanced ecosystem, we have to take into consideration where the people come first.
0: Yeah. One of the main reasons why I wanted to reach out to you was based on a conversation that I had with a local farmer. I always like to buy local organic. To me, that's the gold standard. And I was talking to a local farmer who has beautiful animal husbandry practices. He truly cares for the land and the people that he feeds. He wants to buy organic feed for his livestock, and he simply can't afford it. And I called the the feed supplier, and I was appalled to hear that organic feed costs twice as much as the conventional feed and almost twice as much as the feed that the farmer was going to buy, which was, quote-unquote, non-GMO. And I think that there's a lot of confusion in the marketplace about non gmo You know, we should let everybody know right off the bat that organic is non-GMO by definition, but non-GMO is not necessarily organic. And when I talked to the feed dealer, I asked him, I said, well, is this non-GMO feed likely sprayed with pesticides? And he said, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So how do we help the farmer, the livestock farmer, get organic feed? And how do we help the consumer navigate this complicated environment?
1: Yeah, it's not an easy one-liner answer, but again, uh, maybe the best way I can explain it is that I'm reaching retirement age here, and I've got a young farmer taking over on the farm. There's no way that this young farmer, Luke is his name, would have been able to take over this operation without me showing him how what he is going to get paid for his grains that he's going to produce is going to be adequate for him to make the payments, to buy the machinery, to buy the equipment, whatever it is, to keep going. Because with $3 corn, for example, there's no way that he can even operate because his cost of production would be beyond that. So that's the first step. The first of all, have to provide a price for that corn or soybeans or kernza that will generate enough income for that farmer. To continue his operation. Secondly, that means that the price to the consumer is going to have to be higher because the retailer is paying more for it. So what it means is we're all of us are in this together in supporting and building the organic food production system. And too often we have the mindset that food should be cheap. No, food has to support our society because that's the most important thing that we're dependent upon and if we don't generate the income to support all of the infrastructure of society parts will deteriorate infrastructure public safety roads highways churches all of these things will not be supported so that's why organic feeds are going to be twice as much as conventional feeds but on the same token that farmer who's feeding that organic feed should be able to get twice as much for the livestock when he sells it. And the consumer then has to realize why they're paying that for the food and how that supports the total society.
0: Yeah. It's such a conundrum, isn't it, especially during hard economic times when people are trying to get by. I don't know what the answer is, but we do need to rework the system. And I think we've got a crisis that offers us an opportunity. Carmen, if you had a a policy wand and you could fix the system, where would you start looking? What would you want to do?
1: From my experience, the policy would have to be to uh, level the playing field. I think one of the policies would have to be limitations on government subsidies and government supports because right now they're totally totally biased towards larger and larger operations if we would eliminate those biases and put policies that are much more favorable to the two three four five hundred acre crop farmers it would make it much more feasible for them To begin farming and to stay in farming. Because what happens is the competition for cost of production becomes so tight, the margins of profit become so tight the larger you become in your operations. And so, uh, just briefly to say it, if I can make $2 a bushel profit on corn or soybeans or whatever it is on my 400 acres, but a ten or 20,000 acre corn or soybean wheat producer only needs to make 50 cents a bushel. Mm. That's where the margin comes into play. And so uh, the buyers are going to go to that larger producer because they can get the raw product cheaper. Wow. That's what the story is all about.
0: Yeah. And that brings me to a point you made in an interview. You cited Wes Jackson for a quote that, Organic is funded on principles, and we need to increase the eyes-to-acres ratio. Explain that.
1: (laughs) Yes, I've lived by that forever. Diversity is not only in crops, but diversity is in the eyes that watch over those crops. And the more eyes you have watching over those crops, the more ideas come forth, the more understandings come forth. And the more intimacy is created between that person husbanding that soil and appreciating the crop and realizing what it is that it takes to produce that. And so that's why we look at the need for more people doing food production. And that in turn means that we can have more people up the chain involved in the food system. And so it it comes back to diversity is more than crops. Diversity, most importantly, includes more people raising the crops.
0: And that would certainly create a healthier rural community situation where now, you know, we drive through so many rural towns that look like they're just crumbling and they don't have the integrity that they once had.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I don't think we realize how many people would really love to grow food. Mm. But the opportunity isn't there, financially if nothing else. But if we can uh, generate the income we and create the opportunities, like I think I've done for Luke, we know that the rural communities are going to once again thrive. We know it will happen. It's just we don't let it happen at this point.
0: Thank you so much, Carmen. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, a farmer with great integrity, Carmen Fernholz, organic farmer based in western Minnesota, that's Madison, Minnesota, where he grows 450 acres of certified organic grains and now is transitioning and letting a young farmer take the reins. Thank you so much, Carmen. I'll provide links to your wise interviews as well.
1: Thank you, Melinda, and keep up doing the great work you're doing.